Welcome to Philosophy as a Way of Life. I am Massimo Piliucci, your host from the City College of New York, and with me is Rob Coulter from the University of Wyoming. Hi, Rob. How are you? Hi, Massimo. How are you today? It's, uh, it's a good day to be talking about Epicureanism, I think. <laughs> is it ever a bad day to talk about Epicureanism? <laughs> but before we get there, uh, let me, as usual, announce accurately our next episode, the next episode of Philosophy as a Way of Life podcast will feature Steve Engel on his book, Growing Moral, A Confucian Guide to Life. If you're interested in that, you want to mark your calendar for Thursday, May 5th at 6 p.m. Eastern time. We keep shifting the times back and forth for the live uh, episodes, but you know this is the one that works next time. So Thursday, May 5th at 6 p.m. If you want to register for that, go to meetup.com and look for the New York Agora. And if you wish to hear past episodes of Philosophy as a Way of Life, including one of the early ones featuring today's guest, go to anchor.fm forward slash philosophy as a way of life or check us out on Spotify. So today our topic is Epicureanism as a philosophy of life. And we have as uh, our guest, John Sellers. Our friend, John, is a reader in philosophy at Royal Holloway, University of London. He's a visiting research fellow at King's College London and a member of Wolfson College, Oxford. He's the author of a number of highly recommended books, including The Art of Living, which is what we talked about last time that he was here on the, Stoic, the Stoics on the Nature and Function of Philosophy. He also authors Stoicism, a very nice uh, introduction to the philosophy, Hellenistic Philosophy, and The Pocket Stoic. And his latest is The Pocket Epicurean, and that's what we're talking about today. Hi, John. Welcome. Hi, um, good to see you, and uh, thanks so much for the invitation. All right, so let's start easy. I, think, I guess I'm going to start with the first question. Usually it's Rob, but I have it right in front of me. Turns out, I hear, that Epicureanism is not about sex, drugs, and rock and roll. So if it isn't, what, what is it about? Can you give us like the, the two-minute capsule version of Epicureanism before we actually get into the details? Yeah, sure. So... Um, the Epicureans were most definitely hedonists. So they think that it's all about pleasure. Pleasure is the only thing that's really good and pain is the only thing that's really bad. So that's the headline. But hedonism can come in lots of different varieties. And there's a certain type of hedonism, which is sex, drugs and rock and roll, right? The more physical pleasure, the better. That's what you want. Um, and there were hedonists like that in antiquity. And Epicurus defines his hedonism in contrast to that kind of sex, drugs, and rock and roll hedonism, and says, well, maybe we can come up with some more sophisticated ideas of pleasure and pain. Maybe it's psychological pleasure and pain that's key to living a good life rather than just physical pleasure and pain. So that might be one way in which we might sort of complicate our um, thinking about hedonism. And the other way is to think about the relationship between consuming pleasure, right? More and more, more food, more excitement, more, more physical stimulation on the one hand, versus reaching a state of pleasantness where you're already in the right place and you don't need any more. In fact, adding more and more and more might actually turn out to be counterproductive. So those are a couple of ways in which Epicurus tries to kind of offer a form of hedonism that isn't simply about consumption and physical pleasure. And we can 
ho hopefully talk some more about about those decisions. right uh, so but i noticed that you've fairly forcefully said it's epicureanism is a is a type of hedonism and um that however is actually debated, debated at least by some people even even in antiquity right at some point cicero for instance says epicurus what are you talking about lack of pain is not pleasure you, you have a very weird definition of a pleasure this is not this is not actually you know this is not what most people count as pleasure and even today occasionally i do see philosophers who who start out talking about epicureanism and you know say okay it's one of the hedonistic schools and then they kind of qualify that it's like well actually not exactly because it's not what most people think of, of hedonism but you think that it's fair to say it's it's okay it's to, to buy epicurus uh line that lack of pain is actually a kind of pleasure yeah i mean so <clears throat> he denies that there's any kind of neutral state between pleasure and pain so that's mm. what that comes down to right mm. there's no situation he he uh, he says where you're simply feeling nothing right that never happens so the absence of pain is itself pleasurable and pleasure is uh, and um <clears throat> uh, yeah so there, there and i think that's not a bad thought right the idea that you're completely neutral and feeling nothing whatsoever doesn't necessarily ring immediately true to me so in that sense despite what Cicero might say, you know, <laughs> the absence of the absence of pain is a pleasurable state to be in. Mm -hmm. um, and that might be a very kind of sort of low level, uninteresting way of thinking about pleasure. But but nevertheless, that's a good place to be for sure. Yeah. Right. I wanted to uh, jump off and ask sort of a, maybe a bigger picture question. Um, so you talked about how Epicurus is concerned with living a good life and and in the pocket Epicurean, you emphasized at the beginning how Epicurus thinks of philosophy as a kind of therapy. And um, he's certainly not alone in antiquity thinking about it, but in that way. Um, but you've, you, of course, have talked about uh, other Hellenistic philosophies as the art of living. And then there's maybe a more recently coined phrase, philosophy is a way of life, right, that we sort of inherited from Addo. And it's, of course, the title of this podcast. Um, I was wondering if you might say something about whether you take those ideas of philosophy's therapy and philosophy's way of life and the art of living to be pretty much the same thing. Are there um, differences that are worth talking about um, or, or somewhere in between? Oh, gosh, yeah, that's a really big um, um, yeah. question, but, but a really interesting one. So... Um, so when I when I was on the show before, we talked about um, the Stoics and the art of living. And when I took when I looked at that phrase in the Stoics, I took it very kind of literally. So they, they use the phrase the art of living and the, the word we're translating there as art is the Greek word techne that you might also translate as say skill, um, you know, technique we get from 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 techne. So the Stoics are talking very specifically about a skill or an expertise, a body of knowledge, right, that you can use in order to be able to live a good life. And so that's a, a quite specific sort of conception that the Stoics have got. Um, um, Epicurus talks explicitly about um, therapy, about therapia. And he talks about um, um, 
I mean, literally hygiene of the soul, right? Which we might translate as something like mental health. Yeah. yeah. So he's very much using that sort of therapeutic way of thinking. Um, and there's no sense that he's talking about some kind of art or, or skill or expertise in the way that the Stoics were. Um, he's just looking at what are the problems that someone might suffer psychologically and how can we um, uh, and how can we treat those? How can we deal with those? How can we use philosophical arguments to remove the, um, the, the mental illnesses, the fears, the anxieties that people are suffering? Right. So I think in both of those cases, they're using the phrases in very sort of careful ways. Now, as it happens, the Stoics also talk about therapy for the emotions, but that's just one part, I think, of their kind of wider idea of, of philosophy as being some kind of skill or expertise. So I think in those two cases, they're, they're using these phrases in very specific ways and they're not just interchangeable. Um, although, you know, we could say maybe there's some overlap. Um, the, the, the phrase philosophy is a way of life. I mean, I take it that that's that's perhaps broader still, um, perhaps slightly vaguer in the sense that it could cover a much wider range of things, right? So um, let's say that someone, <clears throat> I mean, I'm, I'm actually writing something about this at the moment mm. in relation to um, Aristotle, right? Um, does Aristotle think philosophy is a way of life? Um, well, he certainly thinks that philosophy is an activity that's a really important and that everyone ought to do. And then, in fact, if you want to live a happy life, you better be doing some philosophy, right? Because it enables you to fulfill your function as a rational human being. So Aristotle sees philosophy as an activity that ought to be part of your life. And if you do it all the time, it effectively becomes your way of life. But I'm not so sure he sees philosophy as a guide. To how to live well right um, and certainly not as something simply therapeutic right i think he thinks that that, that philosophy is um the pursuit of knowledge pursuit of understanding right an activity of inquiry and in that sense that's that can become a way of life right if it's if it's all you do um and again that i think that's quite distinct from what the stoics or the Epicureans would be saying. So I think, yeah, philosophy as a way of life would be the broad um, umbrella mm -hmm. um, phrase. And then we might cash that out in different ways. And unsurprisingly, different philosophers will give their own different accounts. But for the Epicureans, the focus does seem to be very much on, on this idea of, of um, therapy. So, so can I just like bounce back at you, right? Is Would this be a fair way of characterizing uh, at least a... a a way of thinking about the different schools that uh, for the Epicureans philosophy is sort of a problem solving strategy, whereas perhaps for the Stoics, they rather have an overarching philosophical view of what constitutes a good life in which philosophy is uh, maybe very central, if not all of it. Is that, is that fair or? Yes, that's, that, that, that's, that's really tricky. I mean, <laughs> Um, there's obviously a, there's there's obviously a kind of a a strong therapeutic element within stoicism yeah absolutely well right yeah. um but it'd be very difficult to say that that's all that they're interested in because they're developing this really complex philosophy that is looking at all sorts of topics that don't obviously have any kind of 
of uh, immediate sort of therapeutic benefit. Mm -hmm. So they've got, if you like, wider intellectual ambitions, we might say. And in that sense, they kind of share something with the sort of spirit of Aristotle's philosophy, mm -hmm. where you're just interested in trying to understand everything. You want to study logic, you want to study um, uh, astronomy, you, you do it all, right? Um, mm -hmm. So the Stoics, I think, are perhaps op op um, occupying a sort of middle ground between Aristotle on the one side, who's got this kind of, you know, encyclopedic desire to understand the world around him. And then the Epicureans on the other side, that, as you say, seems a bit more kind of problem solving, um, focused on, okay, there are some people that um, uh, are unhappy, how do how do we fix that? What what remedies or medicines can we give? Um, and then I guess, I mean, the skeptics of this period, the Pironian skeptics as well, often talk about their philosophy as um, medicinal, offering therapies of different strengths in order to fix people's problems. Not so much um, mental health in the way that we would talk about it today, but mistaken beliefs, mm -hmm. which, you know, um, so um, mental failures in a slightly different sense. <laughs> And actually, the, my next so question, yeah, my next question is actually follows up on what you just said, John, uh, which is one of the things you have pointed out uh, in the book is that Epicurus thought that understanding the way the world works, for instance, in terms of physical theory, conception of gods, death, and so on, is very important to Epicureans uh, in terms of their goal of living a good life. So could you elaborate a little bit of, on, on that? Because that seems to have something in common with the way in which the Stoics also approach. I mean, the Stoics famously tell, tell us that in order to figure out your ethics, the way you want to live, you also have to study your physics, you know, natural science, basically metaphysics on the one hand, because you want to understand how the world works. And you also have to study logic, which meaning, you know, good reasoning. So are the Epicureans doing something similar or is it significantly different from the Stoics or, or, or what? Yeah, sure. Um... I mean, I, th I think it's fairly similar. I mean, we might be able to pick apart a slight different in difference in emphasis. Um, I mean, Epicurus himself stresses in one of his letters about meteorology, that the reason why we might want to study the heavens and study um, nature and the way the weather works is precisely in order to remove our anxieties about it. So he presents it, he describes it in very instrumentalist terms, right? This is why um, you would do this. And, um, and the great, I mean, in many ways, the great work of Epicureanism is Lucretius's poem on the nature yes. of things. And in there throughout, despite in many ways it being primarily a work of physics, right? And he's spending a lot of time describing the natural world, but also, um, you know, the development of human civilization. Um, time and again throughout, throughout um, uh, his poem, he stresses the reason why we're looking at all of this is to dispel human concerns and worries. That's the motivation, mm -hmm. right? Um, but the one point that I think they would share with the Stoics would be the thought that you've got to understand nature correctly, right? I mean, it's. I mean, I think some people have the concern that if if you conceive philosophy um, as sort of narrowly therapeutic, you could end up in a very bad position where you encourage people to believe anything, 
so yeah. long as it has the right sort of therapeutic result, right? Yeah. And and the Epicureans are definitely going to want to resist that. They're going to say, look, you need to understand the way the world really works. You need to get it right. And by getting it right, you'll overcome all of this misguided beliefs that are causing you all of this psychological disturbance. So there's a there's a very clear focus on um, you know on really understanding nature in its own terms, of really doing the science, we might say. Um, yeah. yeah, and I, and I, I think I I see aspects of this in in multiple uh, Hellenistic philosophies. I mean, the Stoics uh, I think will make a similar argument. It's like if you don't understand the world in which you live, you're likely to make mistakes uh, about your life, right? It's particularly if you don't understand human nature your own nature but but also in general the, the, the how the way the world works um Cicero in on divination says very clearly you know it's just a, it's a bad idea to assent uh, to false opinions because um what that does is again it you you misnavigate the world so to speak you, you go into different direction so do you think that that makes therefore this kind of approach uh is one of the things that helps making these philosophies uh very much current or of current utility because I, I see a world you know just like earlier today i was on twitter and and i unfortunately got myself into a tangled uh you know conversation with a, a number of very strong proponents of what i think are pseudoscientific notions and one of my you know and at some point of course somebody predictably brought up the usual things like well what's the harm so so what if people believe in astrology or in whatever and I said, well, the arm is that you're likely to make mistakes if, if you operate on the basis of a fundamentally bad con, uh, you know, conception of the world, then one of these days you're going to uh, do something or, or act on something in a way that it's actually harmful to you or, or, or other people. So to me, that's one very nice, very interesting connection between the ancient uh, Greco-Roman philosophies and and where we're now. What, what's your take on on the importance of sort of understanding the world in that sense? I mean, I suppose one reason why perhaps both Epicureanism and Stoicism might um, appeal um, at the moment, in particular, is um, that they both share. I mean, they both show a number of characteristics that I think will kind of resonate with how a number of people might think today, right? So they're both materialist schools of philosophy, right? Both of them think that everything that exists is physical. Uh, there's nothing supernatural. There's nothing immaterial. Um, it's all just matter, right? So they agree on that point. And they also agree that all of our knowledge um, comes via the senses, right? right. Now, and those are two, those two are two, you know, modern, you know, fairly, fair, you know, you know there's their 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 claims that seem fairly intuitive to a lot of people today. They certainly seem very intuitive to me, right? Yeah. Um, and so, although you know, we could spend a lot of time sort of talking about the the differences between the two, and obviously they have a different conceptions of nature. There's a certain amount of common ground between them, I think, and and that common ground I think resonates with a with with what we might call a sort of you know a fairly modern scientific worldview. And that's one reason why I think people can feel that they might be able to connect with these two um, philosophies yeah. um, now. And in fact, it may well be that in many respects, Epicureanism might be more relatable for many people. I mean, yeah. I mean, you and I have been involved in this revival of Stoicism over the past few years, and a number of critical commentators along the way have said, well, 
why on earth would Stoicism prove to be so popular, given that his <laughs> physics involves all sorts of claims that many people today wouldn't take that seriously? Pantheism, um, you know, a belief in divine providence, right? right? Um, and you know, and various other things that we, that, you know, uh, that, that that we might think of. Whereas the Epicureans, their physics seems to, you know, have much more in common with with um, what we might think of modern scientific thinking, right? Is this is just lifeless matter in motion that combines in all sorts of contingent ways, none of which is planned. There's no reason behind the whole thing, um, orchestrating orchestrating the experiment. It just happens. And all sorts of weird and wonderful things are created in the process. And in that sense, you might think that Epicureanism ought to be a much easier sell to a modern audience mm. than Stoicism. Yeah, you would think so. Um, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe we'll follow up with this in a, in a minute. I think Rob has, a, has the next question already. Yeah, I wanted to sort of, so you talk about the sort of comparing them and, and, and of course, famously Seneca does a lot of that, right? He, he's happy to mine Epicurus and other Epicureans for lots of pithy sayings, you know, throughout, for example, his letters. Um, and, you know, he says he's happy to pick up wisdom wherever he finds it. But I wonder if there's sort of a maybe a funny danger about doing that, right? Because as you point out, right, the the sort of physical structure and thus I think probably the reasons that Epicurus or a Stoic even if they sort of would both accept the same sentence, right? The, the, the reasons and the theories in which those sentences are embedded might be different enough that the particular claim, like for example, that death is nothing to us, right? Epicurus's argument in, in the letter to Menoikius, for example, um, might, then even just saying that death is nothing to us, even if a Stoic would want to accept it, well, sort of means something quite different and or or be embedded in such a way that its implications um, change quite a bit, depending on the sort of overall theory that that one might hold. Does that make any sense? Yes, it does. Um, I mean, I think really we'd have to look at it in a at a case by case basis. Okay. So. I mean, the death is nothing to us, example. Um, I don't see any obvious problem why a Stoic, for instance, couldn't take up that argument in particular and, and, and run with it, right? Um, the, the, the dissolution, you know, given, and again, I mean, in part, this comes down to certain shared um, and beliefs that they would hold, right? So if the Stoics also think that we're basically physical things, and when the body is destroyed, the mind is destroyed with it. Um, there's a weird niche argument about the souls of sages, perhaps surviving after their bodies for a short while. But, but you know, given none of us are sages, we don't need to worry about that, right? So <laughs> we all die with our bodies. Um, and um, so I think that there, that's an argument that they could probably take up um, because you've got that, that kind of broad shared background. Um, but I agree, there may be on other points, um, it may be that you see arguments coming from a very different, um, very different context. I mean, in terms of their ethics, one of the things that's striking is both the Epicureans and the Stoics are going to downplay the importance of material possessions. Right. Um, 
and those sorts of external things um, uh, in living a good life, right? Both of them are going to suggest that what really matters is ultimately something internal, right? So the Stoics are going to talk about character and virtue, and the Epicureans are going to talk about reaching a state of mental tranquility um, and experiencing that psychological pleasure. Um, so in that context, they're going to give very, very different arguments Right. But to get to rough, you know, uh, broadly similar conclusions. So, so you don't think there's a sort of systematic, uh, what incorrigibility between the theories? Rather, we could settle it bit by bit or something like this. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. And I think it's, and I think, as I was saying, I think that's in part because there is a certain amount of common ground, right? Mm -hmm. They're materialists, they're empiricists, and so on. I mean, I'll give another example. The, I mean, the, the traditional textbook version is the Stoics are all about virtue, and the Epicureans are all about pleasure. And this is a fundamental difference between them. And there's no real point of common ground. Um, now, as it turns out, I don't really talk about this so much in the book. Um, the Epicureans also talk about virtue. They also talk about the value and importance of virtue. And they'll talk about those traditional virtues that the Stoics talk about, like moderation and courage and practical wisdom. And like the Stoics, they'll also suggest that these virtues tend to come as a package, right? So a surprising amount of overlap, as it turns out. The only real significant difference is that the, the Stoics, I take it, are committed to the view that these things are inherently valuable, inherently valuable, right? So, you know, you do the courageous thing because it's the right thing to do, right. full stop. Whereas the Epicureans are going to say, you do the courageous thing to do because not only will you gain pleasure from doing that, but also you will um, increase pleasure and reduce pain for other people too. So, you know, in that sense, the virtues become um, merely instruments, right? A means to, to, to another end, namely increasing pleasure and reducing pain. Now, if you're, a, if you're an ethical theorist, you're gonna get very, very worked up about that difference, right? And you can have an old ethics class about why that's so important. But practically, in terms of how you live your life, you're gonna be doing the same sorts of action. And in both cases, you're gonna be doing it for good, good motivations, right? even if you would justify it in different terms. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Uh, I want to follow up on what we were discussing earlier about why one, one reason perhaps why Stoicism is more popular than Epicureanism these days. But what you just said reminds me of yet another comment by Cicero comments a lot on Epicureanism, as you know, um, and uh, in, various, in various places. And one of the comments that he makes is that uh, he says over and over that Epicurus was a nice guy. And that in practice, he was doing, you know, he was really living a right, right life. It just was misguided philosophically, just so from a philosophical perspective, just forget about it. But in terms of, you know, it, of what he was actually doing. So that goes to, to your point. Um, however, the, the question that I want to raise is that um, it is at least my, my, my understanding that Epicurus recommended essentially staying away or mostly stay away from social and especially political, especially political life on the grounds that, as we know, that actually increases pain, doesn't decrease pain. And, you know, so he was right in that sense. However, this strikes me as a very different policy from what the Stoics uh, pursue. And in fact, one of our 
listeners has a similar question. Mark says, is it accurate to say that the four stoic virtues lead to a more pro-social philosophy? And then the Epicureans are more self-focused, you know, and, and he wonders how an Epicurean would respond to that criticism. So if that's the case, you know, when I actually looked years ago into both Stoicism and Epicureanism, I sort of compared them side by side. That was one of the deciding factors for me to, uh, in terms of being attracted more to Stoicism. That is, I cannot conceive of a meaningful life as a social being that doesn't involve a political involvement. Uh, but I also understand that uh, Epicurus is right. You get involved in politics, that's painful. So uh, so what is, is there real, really, first of all, such a sharp contrast as it is often presented? And if so, do you think that that might be at least part of the explanation for why uh, Epicureanism, which you would think would be very popular, it's actually not, at least not, not, not these days. Yeah, that's, a, I think, in that realm of sort of social political philosophy, we see a, see a real difference between Epicureanism and Stoicism that opens up. Um, so, I mean, Epicurus talks a lot about um, friendship and the importance of friendship and our relationships with other people. Um, and he talks about the ways in which um, friendship might offer a foundation for a political community, right? Um, in a very sort of idealistic way. Um, but of course, right. friendship relationships are, are hard work. They take a long time <laughs> yes. to, to build up, right? It involves developing trust over a period of time. You need to get to know people. Really important, valuable relationships. But um, you, you can, as we all know, you construct them one at a time. And there's a limit to how many you can have. So you can imagine building a fairly small, quite close-knit sort of community of people who really look out for each other and, and care for one another's well-being um, because they have these friendship relationships. And our impression is that this is what Epicurus himself did in his garden community just outside Athens. But, but that kind of community is inevitably going to be you know, restricted in, in, in size and how big it can be, right? Um, in contrast to that, so th there's no sense of a kind of a, a, a wider sense of shared um, sort of brotherhood with all of humankind in the way that we find in the Stoics. The Epicureans don't really talk in those terms. Um, and I mean, this is a really interesting point because it brings us back to what we were saying earlier about the physics and the differences in, in the positions. I mean, the reason why the, the Stoics will stress this kind of universal cosmopolitan attitude towards everyone you know everyone is my brother and sister right regardless of who they are or whether i've even met them and that's because we all have this shared rationality and it's not even that we own we each have our own little private bit of rationality all of that rationality is part of this single um pervading rationality that runs throughout the whole cosmos right so we're literally you know, um, parts of this this community of rational beings. You know, um, you know, literally, not not metaphorically. We're parts of this larger, right. la larger thing. Um, and is that that difference in their physical theory that I think leads to these different these different political um, outlooks? Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. So yeah, that, yeah. that's com that confirms the uh, the point. Yes, Rob. Yeah, I, I thought maybe we'd ask a couple of questions from uh, the audience. And, and of course, if you have others, please 
add them in the chat, everybody. Um, but this is one from Alexander. Uh, what do you think about the idea that, that the Stoic term eupatheiai, right? So the emotions that the sage would have is close in some way to the Epicurean concept of pleasure in the, I, I guess he means in the sort of static uh, ataraxia sense. Anything about that? Mm, yeah. So I guess, mm, tricky. I mean, I guess the stoic the, the stoic good emotions are these very specific correlates to the to the to the the, the bad emotions. Um, in in Epicureanism, we get a lot of talk of fear, right? There's I, I don't get much of a sense of a, a wider analysis of lots of different emotions, but there's lots of talk about fear being a bad thing, right? Fear of death, fear of the gods, and then the contrast to that is ataraxia, tranquility. Um, untroubledness literally right so we've got we it, there's a sense in which for the epicureans fear is the bad emotion and so the eupatheia would be um ataraxia untroubledness um which is precisely the non the non-bodily um and pleasure that the epicureans are after and as we were saying earlier um you know uh it's it's the it's a psychological pleasure which at the same time is simply the absence of psychological pain, um, that untroubledness. Right. So yeah, I think that's how you could connect those. So actually follow up on this. Um, I noticed conversations that I've had with people about mostly stoicism, but also the comparison between stoicism and, uh, and uh, Epicureanism, that there is a little bit of a confusion between the terms apatheia and ataraxia. Right, so my understanding is apatheia, which is mostly used by the Stoics, uh, is about not being disturbed by the unhealthy emotions, by the by the passions. Right? Um, is it is it correct to say that ataraxia is sort of broader than apatheia? It's just like mental tranquility in general, and not just as a result of uh, you know being disturbed by the passions, or are they actually much more interchangeable than? than people normally think? Oh, gosh, that's a, yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> I, mean, I, I mean, I mean, I, I've, I, I mean, I've always understood apatheia to refer specifically to those negative emotions that the Stoics right. think we ought to want, we ought to um, try to avoid, right? So right. that's my understanding too. Yeah, avoid these things. Those are the things that that um, are going to cause you trouble. Um, but as I mean, as I was saying a moment ago, I mean ataraxia literally is kind of you know um, untroubledness. So I suppose it involves avoiding whatever it is you think that could cause you trouble, that could cause you mental disturbance. And again, if you're a Stoic, you're going to say, well, it's the pathé that are, your, are the things that are the mental disturbances. So um, in that sense, I mean, it looks as if the two terms are doing roughly the same work, aren't they? They've both got that privative A at the beginning, right? You know, mm -hmm. apatheia, avoid mental disturbances, ataraxia, avoid mental troubles. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, I mean, it doesn't look, look as if there's going to be a huge distance between the two. Yeah, and in fact, uh, one of our... Uh members of the audience, Anthony, just, just following up on that. It's like, for the Stoics, isn't ataraxia a byproduct of eupatheia, of eupatheia? So, yeah, in other words, are they, they seem to be connected, in, at least in most people's um, 
sort of understanding of, of it. But I think Rob has a, a follow-up on, on this. Yeah, well, maybe not a direct follow-up, but but I want to follow up on, on some of this emotion talk, right? So it sometimes seems to me in talking with uh, people, especially about stoicism, but I wonder if you could connect this to Epicureanism as well, is the way we talk about emotions in English seems to map pretty poorly onto Stoic emotional theory, mm -hmm. right? So there's the ideas, for example, of a propatheia and you know the bodily reaction, and then there's our ascent to a judgment, right? All these all these different aspects of the Stoic theory, and when we use the word emotion in English, it's oftentimes not very clear what if any of those parts we mean, or if all of them jumble together, or what. Um, and I, so I'm wondering, sort of, on a purely sort of selfish practical level, if if you've got any great tips for sorting that out in conversations with people, but also I wonder if you think that maybe there are some confusions like that in understanding, for example, what the Epicureans mean when they talk about fear. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, yeah, it's a really interesting question about emotions. Uh, in fact, one of the one of the first talks I gave at one of the first Stoicon events was precisely on that, right? <laughs> that topic. It's on the Modern Stoicism website somewhere, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, the, the English word emotion is just really broad and vague and ill-defined, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, a mental feeling, I think, is the kind of sort of dictionary definition, right? Whatever that, you know, so it's very hard to pin down. And again, thinking about the Stoics in particular, it's going to cover those first movements that the Stoics say, well, those aren't what we mean by, by passe or emotions proper. Mm -hmm. um, it's going to include the sort of feelings of, of affection towards one's family that the Stoics would classify under, you know, oikiosis. And they say, well, that's all fine and natural and normal and proper. Um, it's a very specific set of, um, uh, uh, of things, of what we would call emotions that count for the Stoics right. as emotions. In fact, um, in Latin, it's often um, um, and pathe is often translated as um, perturbationes, mm. which is then translated into English as as just disturbance. Right. And so I think with the Stoics to talk about disturbances rather than emotions may be one useful way to go. Right? Mm. Um, you know, um, and then we can talk about distress, fear, uh, desire. These are disturbances. These are things that unsettle us and upset us. You know, um, we, we no longer function properly when these things get a grip on us. And Just real so, quickly, is is that Latin translation, is that Cicero's doing? Uh, probably. Yeah. 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 We, get, we can probably blame Cicero for a lot of this. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> or, 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 you know, or, or yeah. be grateful that they did that. Um, yeah. Actually, I wanted to add some, one more thing about, about mm -hmm. the emotions, just to make things even more confusing. Uh, when I looked into, you know, my background is in biology, so I occasionally do look into the, what the biologists have to say about this, in particular the neuroscientists. And if you look at modern authors like Antonio Damasio, things get more complicated because uh, he actually uses the standard terminology in cognitive science is that emotions are things of which we're not aware. It's the feelings that we are, that are things of which we're aware. So for instance, uh, fear uh, is described both an, as an emotion as an, and as a feeling. 
it's an emotion when you have these these you know automatic uh, physiological response to whatever situation and then it becomes a feeling once you actually become aware of it and immediately starts having a cognitive component because you start thinking oh my gosh i should be a afraid of whatever and then you find the uh, an object of which or a situation of which you'd be you should be uh, afraid of so in that sense however the modern uh, conception of emotions or feelings as the neuroscientists call it actually max matches a little better with the stoic theory than than uh, than the the english common sense use of those words because uh, kind of the sciences do recognize this what what the stoics called the proto uh, emotion or a pre-emotion you know so this notion that it's completely automatic there is a rea reaction that is entirely automatic that Seneca says in on anger you can't control it's just there it's like blushing uh, as opposed to the cognitively mature version of the same thing where you start having an inner dialogue with yourself and building explanations about why you're feeling a certain thing and and therefore uh, you then you act in a certain in a certain way with it. So yeah, it's it's the the, the whole notion of the, the whole mapping of emotions between stoicism and modern science is actually a fairly uh, interesting topic. Uh, Rob, do you have what we have a few more minutes? So do you have a, a, your next question, or you want to pick something from the audience? Uh, yeah, I just thought I'd maybe pick pick something from the mm -hmm. audience. Um, Daniel just posted. Um, how would the Stoics and Epicureans react to uh, Viktor Frankl and logotherapy? Are there connections there, um, John, you could talk about? Or um, I can't claim any great expertise on Viktor Frankl, I'm, I'm afraid. I mean, I know people often um, uh, suggest that there are um, uh, sort of resonances between um, what he was talking about and Stoicism in particular. Um, but I'm, I'm not aware... I'm not, I don't think people ever claimed there was any kind of direct influence, just that they no. kind of reached a similar, a similar place. But yeah, that's right. That's right. There is, uh, there's been claims, uh, well, substantive claims, I think, of direct influence on, on of stoicism on cognitive behavioral therapy, but not on logotherapy. In fact, if I remember at some point, I talked about this to Don Robertson, and he explained to me that logotherapy is actually a, you know, different branch of psychotherapy that is that is separate from the one that to which cbt belongs and it's actually closer to existential therapy and things like mm -hmm. that um, mm -hmm. but uh, it is a good question but you know uh, it, it's one that really would require going into details into victor frankel uh, book um, so i had a question for for john which is as you know uh, the epicureans have historically been both misunderstood and despised um, by every, pretty much by everybody. I mean, the Christians, of course, because you know the the the, the there was there was some obvious mismatch there, both in terms of the metaphysics and the ethics between the Epicureans and the Christians. Christians were much more friendly to the Stoics because the Stoics kept talking about virtue and they're talking about providence. While on the other hand, as you pointed out, the Epicureans is like, no, sorry. All of that stuff, especially the Providence stuff, goes out the window. But, but to be fair, the Epicureans were misunderstood and criticized. In fact, more than criticized. I, I think I'm using the word despised on purpose because, you know, there were criticism across schools. Uh, the Aristotelians criticized the Stoics. The Stoics criticized the skeptics, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. 
But the Epicureans really get the despise part, you know, and, and it seems like everybody, Epictetus writes about them with contempt. Cicero says, just says, I don't know what these people are talking about. What, what are they thinking? Um, why? <laughs> what is so bad from the point of view of the other philosophical schools, Hellenistic schools? What, is, what was so bad about, what was so jarring about uh, uh, Epicureanism? They got almost arguably even more despised than the cynics, which, you know, it's pretty high bar. Yeah, so, um, I mean, you're absolutely right. There, there's a sense in which there's a certain, there are a certain number of common ethical assumptions shared by many of the ancient schools of philosophy. And the reason why I think is because they can all ultimately trace themselves back to Socrates, right? So whether you're a Plato, an Aristotle, a cynic, a stoic, um, you know, an, an academic skeptic, you can all trace back your inspiration to Socrates. And the Epicureans are the one philosophical school. I mean, there are others too, but the Epicureans are the, were the ones, you know, um, influential philosophical school who are completely separate from that broad Socratic yeah. family tree, right? So they're not interested in virtue um, uh, as being something inherently valuable, as we were saying earlier. They treat it as something, you know, instrumentally valuable insofar as it, it takes us in the direction of securing pleasure and avoiding pain. Um, and I think, although, you know, as, as you said earlier, Cicero acknowledges, well, Epicurus was a nice guy and he lived a good life. <laughs> um, I think the real concern was that um, hedonism could easily go in a very bad direction. Um, there's a sense in which it could be used to um, justify all sorts of sort of self-indulgent behavior. And, and that was the thing I think that, that people were very concerned about. And I think that that's an unfair criticism of the Epicureans, um, but I think that might have been part of the, um, the concern. And perhaps this also connects to wider, again, wider social political thinking, right? So whether you're, you know, Aristotle in the, the Greek city-state, I mean, obviously he's a bit before, before Epicurus, but with, whether you're in that context or whether you're in a later Roman context, the idea of virtue being a set of, values and character traits that you must embrace in order to be a good citizen and be an upstanding mm. part of your community was kind of I think quite an embedded social attitude in the ancient world and the Epicureans are effectively um, um, rejecting that and as you said turning their back on traditional politics going off and, and setting up their own private communities um, so they are quite literally the the outsiders we might say yeah, and in fact, now that you mention it, the, the other two schools that are dismissed very quickly, uh, especially by Cicero, are the Cyrenaics and, and the Pyrrhonists, but Epicurus, which, sorry, but which Cicero doesn't, however, treat in any detail because he says they're both dead anyway. <laughs> they're, they're gone, they're just not, you know, who cares? Uh, and so he focuses on the Epicureans because he sees them as, as a threat. But in fact, those other two schools do have in common with the with the Epicureans a rejection of virtue as central. I mean, even the Cyrenaics were the really basic hedonist, you know, physical pleasure here and now. They do talk about virtue, but again, it's instrumental. It's like virtue as in temperance, because you you want to own your pleasures and not be owned by them, but not but not as a thing that is valuable in and of itself. And the Pyrenees, I don't even think that they 
they talk about uh, virtue at all. Their their goal is ataraxia, and it is and their major uh, way to get there is a uh, famous epoche, the suspension of judgment, right? So all those three schools, you are, I think I think you're absolutely right. They are what they have in common is essentially a rejection of the Socratic paradigm. And the reason probably the, the Epicureans become the major targets is because they were very popular uh, at the time, um, while the other two were already were already in decline. So that's a, that's a good point. Uh, Rob, did you did you have a follow up? Yeah, I just want, I just wanted to, to press on this connection to Socrates a little bit, and maybe maybe talk a little bit more about it. Um, you know, so so there's sort of well, Socrates is the guy. We're on Team Socrates. <laughs> Anybody not on our team stinks, right? Uh, so that's one way to, <laughs> I suppose, read it. You know, and of course, Epicurus he built the garden outside the walls, so he's not one of us, right? There's a literal wall separating. Um, mm -hmm. But there's something maybe more uh, interesting and substantive that I think you you hinted at, but I wonder if we could press on it a little more. The idea that, for example some of the specific arguments that we get in Plato's version of Socrates, um, maybe echoed in Xenophon, but not nearly as detailed, about the centrality of, not just the centrality of virtue, but the absolute necessity and even sufficiency of virtue, right? Um, so it's not, it's not a difference between whether it's important or just kind of merely instrumental. It's like the absolute centrality that we get in arguments like, famously in the Euthydemus, but uh, other mm -hmm. echoes throughout the Apology and things like that. Um, do you think then, so maybe this is a multi-part question, right? Do you think that the Epicureans might have sort of a response to that sort of argument that's either explicit somewhere in the text or implicit? Um, so maybe if you have something to say about that. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, that, that broad Socratic family all share that belief that virtue is um, necessary for living a good life. And then effectively their internal disputes about whether it's sufficient or not, right? right, right. And so, um, but, but the necessity is absolutely there. Um, now, so what, yeah, what's the Epicurean response to that? I mean, in part, I think, I think the Epicurean response to that is, is one of what we might call simple, psychological observation so they say well let's look at people let's look at how they behave um what do people actually do um they pursue pleasure and they avoid pain um we can simply observe that behavior in people and we can observe that you know all the way uh, you know all the way through that's what people that's what people do um and that's the thing that motivates them and when they manage to attain that, when they manage to escape um, uh, pain, in particular psychological pain, anxiety, and so on and so forth, um, then they're content, then they are living a good life. Um, and we can just kind of observe that, that, that when that happens, that's what living a good life looks like. Um, the, these virtues aren't actually required after all. <laughs> So, so that's basically John Stuart Mill's answer, right? That that he, of course, he he, of course, explicitly ties himself to Epicurus, right? Is there something in the Epicurean text that would give us that? Do you think? Um, I mean, one of the one of one of the one of the challenging things about Epicureanism is that the texts are relatively brief, right? right? 
I mean, for Epicurus himself, we've got three relatively short letters. Just one of them deals with ethics. And then we've got two collections of sayings, all very, very brief you know, passages. Right. And so, I mean, a lot of the work is really unpacking very, very brief Right. very very brief statements right so there's one there's one saying in epicure in epicurus where he says pleasure is the alpha and the omega it's the beginning and the end right yeah. and so you could you know and that's been unpacked you know drawing on other little snippets to say well um pleasure is the beginning it's the it's the thing that we all start pursuing but it's also the goal the thing that we ought to be pursuing right yeah. um <laughs> So the, the evidence is fairly slight and gnomic and people do a lot of work. I mean, I was talking earlier about the importance of friendship um, in Epicurean thinking. Um, I think there are something like four or five, say, four or five sentences in the, in, in, I think it might be the, in the Vatican sayings, if I remember rightly, but there are just four or five sentences and that's it. That's Epicurus's political philosophy. And you've got to unpack it all from just that. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, so it's very different from, from, from Stoicism, where there's potentially right. an enormous yeah. amount of material to read. And right. it can be a real challenge to reach that point where you feel as if you've actually got your head around all of it and taken into account all of the various bits of evidence. We are getting near the end. I want to bring up another point from the chat uh, from Alexander uh, that um, that I, it might be useful to clarify. So he, he's suggesting, he says, couldn't the atheist worldview of the Epicureans be a major reason for them being outcasts as opposed to the Stoics who at least talked about God and providence and all that sort of stuff. But my understanding is that the Epicureans were not really atheists. They were more close to, to what we consider a deist uh, position. That is, Epicurus didn't say there are no gods. It just said the gods are there doing their own gaudy thing, uh, and they don't care that, <laughs> about what happens here. Um, nevertheless, even a deist position is not really that removed from, from atheism, certainly as far as a religion like Christianity is concerned. So you think there is something to this notion that one of a number of reasons why the Stoics uh, were more palatable to the Christians than the Epicureans is because of the, this notion of providence and gods? Yeah, um, it's, a, it's a really good question. I think there are sort of three strands to that. So the first strand would be, as you've just said, strictly speaking, the Epicureans aren't atheists. They do believe in gods. But because they're materialists, it means the gods have to physically exist somewhere. And so they kind of put them, you know, they exist on a planet a long way away, right? And they have mm -hmm. no interest in human life. So they're not going to bother us. Oh, no, Scientology. They were Scientologists. Look at that. <laughs> and, uh, and they think that, you know, and they think that there are multiple, you know, these are multiple gods in roughly human image. So you can see how it connect with the traditional Greek, Greek pantheon. Uh, and in that sense, you think that it might be quite appealing to the Greek audience of its day. Um, but if you compare that to, again, that broad Socratic family of, of philosophies, Plato, um, Aristotle, the Stoics, um, they're all going to stress the kind of rationality in nature, right? They're all going to stress in different ways the idea that nature is ordered and there's some kind of principle um, um, organizing it. Um, whereas, and the Epicureans are again the outcast because they think it's just contingent and random. So that's another way in which they're kind of outcast from the mainstream in physics as well as in ethics. 
Um, and then again, of course, within the in the subsequent Christian context, um, no one's interested in these Olympian gods living on another solar system, right? Um, <laughs> and th that's not going to be enough to save the Epicureans from the charge of atheism in that Christian context. Mm -hmm. So, um, of course, historically, that ma makes them outcasts. And again, as um, um, as materialists denying any kind of immortality after death, um, that's also going to be problematic in that context. And so it's really only in the 18th century, in the French Enlightenment, where you'll get people that will come out and publicly defend the Epicureans as offering the kind of, you know, as they see it, the kind of radical atheism and materialism that was, you know, the order of the day in, in, in 18th century France. Yeah. That's right. Thank you. Um, all right, we we got to the end of the hour, uh, John. This this was a pleasure as usual. Uh, thanks for for uh, coming on uh, on the show. No, thank you both very much, and uh, and to everyone else for the the questions. Um, there's so much more we could talk about. Absolutely. All right. Uh, so I'm we're going to wrap it up by just uh, um, reminding people that the next episode of Philosophy as a Way of Life will feature Steve Engel who will be chatting with us, with Rob and I, uh, on his book, Growing Moral, A Confucian Guide to Life. So we're moving east uh, next uh, for next episode. And join us if you're interested in that on Thursday, May 5th at 6 p.m. Eastern time. To register, go to meetup.com and look for New York Agora. In the meantime, you can hear past episodes of Philosophy as a Way of Life, including in a few days, the one that we just did with John. Uh, for to do that, go to anchor.fm forward slash philosophy as a way of life or check us out on Spotify. Thanks very much and stay safe. Thanks, everybody. Uh -huh.